Howdy folks, welcome to Sketchy Conversations with John Melson IV. On today's episode, I'm chatting with animator, executive producer, writer, and story editor and showrunner Tom Ruger. Tom Ruger is the creator of Animaniacs, Pinky and the Brain, Hysteria, Tiny Toons, Road Rovers, and also the writer and producer, story editor, and showrunner for all those series as well. Plus, he developed the series Freakazoid, and also the writer and producer of that. Also the writer and executive producer of Batman Animated Series, developer, writer, and executive producer of Disney's The 7D, creator, producer, and writer of A Pup Named Scooby-Doo, executive producer and writer for Animalia, lyricist on the main title for Animaniacs, Tiny Toons, and Freakazoid. Also... All three of those won Emmys for Best Song of the Year. Lyricists for many songs on Animaniacs, lyricists of the main titles for Pinky and the Brain, Hysteria, Road Rovers, A Pup Named Scooby-Doo, and Disney's The 7D. Also, he's been nominated for over 30 Emmy Awards and winner of 14 Emmy Awards for his work on those series. Check it. You've been working in the animation system for years though, right? Since, uh, uh, professionally since 1978. Uh, you do the math. A long time yeah you worked filmation too right i did i did gilligan's planet gilligan's planet uh yep i did black star uh the lone ranger tarzan uh flash gordon and uh yes uh, the last script i wrote was for uh, gilligan's planet and i said i have got to get out of here <laughs> I've heard that a lot about filmation, actually. <laughs> um, so what was it like there? Well, uh, great people. Uh, my boss was Art Nadell, a uh, wonderful uh, story editor, great guy. He had uh, cut his teeth editing uh, Gunsmoke, the series Gunsmoke. So he was a film editor. And he hooked up with, uh, and he directed uh, Elvis's movie, Clambake. And... Uh, one of the other writers there was Arthur Brown, who uh, wrote the movie Clambake. So it was a big Clambake connection with Elvis. Uh, so uh, Lou Scheimer was really the creative head of the studio, or the, and certainly uh, one of the great characters of the studio, a great, big, gregarious, uh, wonderful man, Lou Scheimer. And uh, Norm Prescott was his partner, who played a, a smaller role in uh, and the studio's day-to-day uh, -day business. But anyway, um, I was there. Uh, I got the job at Filmation uh, when Hanna-Barbera uh, laid me off. I was uh, an assistant animator and animator. And uh, in the winter, uh, in the December of 79, they let me and several other people uh, go, laid us off, because they were going to start shipping some stuff overseas. And uh, I sent out... Uh, uh, a spec script to all the animation studios in town and Art Nadell was the one who read it and said, yeah, let's call this guy up. Let's get him writing scripts for us. So thank you, Art Nadell. Nice. So were there any other animators, uh, filmation that uh, you're working with? It's like, hey, they kind of made it kind of big. Well, a lot of the people that uh, uh, I knew from Hanna-Barbera. I mean, Charlie Howe went over there. Tom Minton was there. Eddie Fitzgerald was there. Uh, and I worked with all those folks on, uh, on Animaniacs and Tiny Toons. Bob Klein, a brilliant, brilliant artist, uh, he was working there and he ultimately uh, went over to Disney. Um, uh, Joe Gall was the, uh, one of the film editors there and he came over to Warner Brothers uh, with Tiny Tunes and stayed there and edited all of our shows. Huh. That name Eddie Fitzgerald takes me back. I remember working at Spunko actually. You know, he had like a blog for a second too, I think. He did, not for a second. Yeah, it was a good blog. It was very funny. Uh, he's a total character and the inspiration for Pinky, of course. Yeah. It all makes sense now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Which I is mean, scary. Yeah, which is scary. Yeah. I had like a thought because I was like, that guy kind of, nah. Apparently I was right. I remember one funny anecdote about Eddie. Well, there were so many, but uh, we sent him overseas to uh, uh, Korea because we were doing, ACOM was doing some animation on Tiny Toons and they weren't sending it back the way we wanted it. And Eddie, uh, so we sent Eddie. Straighten him out, Eddie. He flew over there and he went through customs 
And uh, they go through his stuff and customs. I guess they checked his thing. And he had a giant kielbasa. He had a big sausage about as big as my arm. And the Korean customs inspectors were like, what is this thing? And so Eddie was concerned that there wasn't going to be any food there that he could eat. So he brought this giant sausage thing that he was going to slice the daily in portions. Anyway. That actually makes sense, factually. <laughs> that kind of sounds some shit that I would do. I'm going to be real with you. Eddie, Eddie's a great, great, uh, funny man. Oh, yeah. I remember that one cartoon he did. Um, it was a short that was featured on What a Cartoon Show back in back in the nineties. I wish they did more with it. But okay, but speaking of which, you were Hannibal Bear in the eighties too, right? Yes, I was there uh, in eight, starting in uh, seventy eight to eighty, then eighty two to eighty nine. Okay, so what was it like in the eighties? Well, I spent a lot of time there. It was it was really uh, it's where I kind of cut my teeth on all sorts of things. Um, uh, I, I, I landed the, the job writing uh, in 82. Jim Ryan, who had written a bunch of Fat Alberts, uh, called me up and said, hey, Hanna-Barbera is really looking for people like you. They need some funny writers. And uh, I guess Joe Barbera had just sold, uh, I don't know, like 30 series or something crazy. And so, uh, so I went over there, uh, Margaret Lesh was in charge of the writers and he said, well, she said, well, you have to go get Joe's blessing. Basically you have to go into Joe Barbera and make sure, you know, he's cool with you starting here. So, uh, went into Joe and sat down and, and met him for the first time. It was a pleasure to meet him. I mean, I'd seen him before, but I never really had a chance to talk with him. And he said, so, uh, you know, um, listen, I'm working on this story and he, proceeds for the next, literally for the next half hour, uh, blow by blow, uh, shot for shot, line for line, he tells me a Yogi Bear cartoon. You know, and Yogi's like running, he's like, hey, Mr. Register. And, uh, and then this bus pulls up and the little kids are in the bus and they go, look at the bear, look at the bear, look at the bear. And, and Yogi turns to Boo Boo and he says, oh, Boo Boo, I can't stand it anymore. I gotta get out of here. And everybody's look at the bears, look at the bear. So he tells us, you know, and I'm like, yeah, that's funny. Yeah. And, uh, and this is a cartoon that Joe made. Uh, they made in like 1959. Yeah. I mean, this, car- this is a cartoon that I had seen. And, and uh, so he, he's telling me this. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. Now, what do you think of that? I said, that's a, that's a great cartoon, Joe. I said, okay, all right. Well, I'll see you Monday. You know, and so that was my job interview with Joe Barbera was listening to Joe tell me, uh, I think, the pilot for the Yogi Bear show. So uh, and and I'll tell you that Joe uh, never forgets a, a situation or a gag. So three years later, you know, maybe five years later, when John Luden and I are writing The Good, The Bad and The Huckleberry for uh, for these long forms which were too long, but they were long. Uh, Joe had us go in and take take sort of uh, some of his tips on what should be in this good, the bad, and the ugly story. And uh, the bus with the kids and the look at the bears gag was in his proposal for the story, and it did sneak in. So some jokes never die. Nah, kind of a callback though, right? Yes, I, yes, a callback. All right, so you also worked on a puppy Scooby Doo, right? Yeah, I developed that. Yeah, I thought yeah, so. That, that, that was yeah, I, that was the first show I produced. I thought so because I was that weird kid over the credits. <laughs> I was seeing oh, yeah. your name a lot, you know, because I, I was able to read like at a really early age, so I just recognized names and everything, right? So I was like, okay, I haven't seen that name for a lot because I was seeing a tiny tunes. So I was like, okay, I've never seen that name. So how did the, how did the development come about? Well. uh I've been working on Scooby since about 83. Um, Hank, Hank Saroyan was the story editor and I got to Hanna-Barbera in 82 and he said, you gotta, you're going to take over Scooby. So then they called me in and they said, you're, you're in charge of Scooby now. And the problem was, <laughs> it's true. I had never watched a Scooby episode. I didn't know. I mean, 
Uh, I had avoided it since 1969 till then. I, I just, but, so that weekend I took all my, all the, the three quarter inch giant tapes and a big machine home and, and uh, watched Scoobies uh, out the yin yang, got the hang of it, wrote down all the things that I thought, you know, we should continue the sort of the, the, the stuff that makes Scooby, you know, zoinks and jinkies and, uh, you know, rats right raggy. I mean, basically, I just, I made a Bible for myself and I uh, became the story editor. Um, so, uh, and then we were making those little 11 minutes with uh, Scooby and Scrappy and Daphne. And we did that for a few years and, uh, and Shaggy, of course. And then uh, Mitch Shower came along and, and had a great idea for uh, making like real monsters and ghosts and things with Scooby which was the 13 ghosts of Scooby-Doo. So, so Mitch, uh, that was Mitch's brainstorm. And he was the producer on that night. I was the story editor. And uh, that was a lot of fun. And it really, you know, he made like little movies. They were, I thought they were pretty, pretty good, clever stories. If we had had probably a slightly uh, upscale uh, animation studio, uh, we would have, it would have really benefited. But anyway, so we did that for a year, and then Scooby was off for a year. There were no no Scooby being made uh, after after uh, Thirteen Ghosts, and Jenny Trias and Amy Simon and Squire Rushnell, who were in charge of ABC Kids, said, "Hey, we got to get Scooby back on our schedule. What's going on? We what do you have?" And so uh, I proposed this younger version, and uh, they went for it, and so I developed that came up with, uh, and since I've been living with these characters for quite a while, I, I really felt like I could reduce them down to like their essence. And uh, so uh, initially, you know, Fred, I had Fred as like as a conspiracy theorist, sort of like real uh, kind of square character. I had Daphne as sort of a, a little rich girl, uh, like the Richie Rich of our group. Um, she had little go-go boots. Uh, Velma, uh, she said, I, I, I proposed that she would only, in the series, she would only say the word jinkies. That was my, that was my uh, plan at the beginning. And, uh, and then Shaggy, of course, be younger, Scooby, and Scott Geralds and Alfred Germano uh, did these beautiful young designs. Iwo Takamoto got very heavy into uh, the design of the show. And uh, so we started writing scripts. The, the network liked it a lot. I got my childhood uh, star from my, my uh, a guy named Chuck McCann was the host of a show I watched when I was a kid called Let's Have Fun. And I had him come in to do the voice for the, the villain in the first episode. And to uh, direct the first episode, I convinced Bill Hanna to direct it. And he spent a week up in his office, uh, which is like in the, the bird's nest, which was above all of Hanna-Barbera, there's like one little office way on top. And he sat there with a metronome for a week and timed out uh, the first episode of Puck Named Scooby-Doo. And it, the show worked. I mean, we, we put a lot of sort of Tex Avery gags in it, um, big wild takes. Joe Barbera came in my office and said, I see what you're doing there. Um, so let me tell you, those wild takes work. Tex and we, you know, because he worked closely with Tex when they were at MGM. They worked, if you have sound effects that equal the sound, the, the wild take. It doesn't work if it's just like, and your eyes are bugging out and it's just a little sound. It's got to be huge, over-the-top, weird, unique sound effects. So good advice. It really is, uh, to think about it. And I'll... It was a Tex Avery influence. I noticed a lot more cartoonish than actually previous cartoonish Scooby. Oh, definitely, yeah. To me, the spiritual sequel actually wasn't Scooby Doo, because it was a flashback sequence where they literally imitated the animation style from Puppet New Scooby Doo. What show? It was uh, what's new Scooby Doo, the one with the that band Simple Plan oh. did the theme for. Technically, right. it's in canon because they literally aped the style from the first season of Helping Scooby Doo for it. I've got to see that. I haven't seen that. It's well, 
Are you talking about the new movie Scoob? No, 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 no. It was like back okay. like in 2006. All right, because Scoob borrows uh, a lot of our pup named Scooby-Doo uh, uh, motifs and concepts. I mean, I came up with the town Coolsville. That was, you know, my little invention. And they, they've kept that going they did. for quite a while. Yeah. Time yeah. to think about it. Yeah, because there wasn't really a town the first Scooby-Doo Worry series. They there was in a van chilling, basically checking out stuff, you know. Well, they they clearly were from some town, but uh, it was never mentioned until uh, a pup named Scooby-Doo, and that's when we named it Coolsville. I also loved in pup that Shaggy's house had Christmas lights on it year round. Which there are people in my neighborhood that have Christmas lights on rear year round. I don't know why, but it they do. really did. It is. It never dawned on me until like right now. It did. <laughs> yep. All right. So, how does one go about developing a show based on another show? Um. Well, that's. See, it wasn't really. Uh, you know, pup. We just took all the same elements, and we just uh, we made the kids younger. We made their concerns younger. Uh, this is for Pup. Um, we uh, did pretty much, you know, we, we tried to make their characters very much uh, focused and, and didn't let them sort of become other characters. Or uh, You really wanted them to see, we wanted to show where they came from. So Fred being the conspiracy theorist, Velma being very quiet, studious, computer nerd type character. Uh, yeah. And then we had additional characters. The, the, the original series didn't have like a recurring villain. So we had, we had Red Herring being uh, Fred's nemesis. And uh, Scott, Scott uh, Menville did the voice for Red Herring. I never realized how long Scott Menville's Menville's been in the game, actually. I never realized to like, get that in the dawn of me, like, it was two guys. It was him, and also they got this voice on Cow and Chicken, whose name I cannot remember right now. Um, I can't remember his name right now, because he actually follows me on Twitter. Cool dude. Um, but I noticed he was on, he did a couple voices in there, too. And even dawned on me, like, because that's something I was to sit down and realize this, I get a little nostalgic and everything, right? Because I'm kind of my animation binge lately, right? Slowly getting back into drawing, right? Trying to like finally. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I'm kind of like retraining myself. So I'm getting like the old, like some of, like, some of the books on animation and everything, just kind of like dabbling back into that. So I was kind of like, you know, binge a little bit, you know, so check out stuff like, check out Puppet Scooby Doo and everything. Just get all nostalgic and whatnot. And I love the songs in that too. Yes. Uh, John, John Debney uh, wrote all these. Uh, I mean, Usually there was a song in each half hour, at least in the first season, and uh, totally total pole guy. I mean, just weird, funny songs. Yeah. You wrote the lyrics for a lot. You wrote the lyrics too, right? Yeah, I wrote the lyrics for the the Scooby Doo, but for the theme songs for that and all the Warner Brothers theme songs. Yeah. Cool. You know, I always kind of joke with a friend of mine. I always thought like um. I always kind of thought the Ramones sound like punk rock Scooby-Doo music, actually. Right, they do. That's right. You know, very similar. Yeah, the Ramones. A little bit. Of that I always kind of thought like one thing. I always thought really cool crossover like a one episode of the Misfits, just one. Uh, well, you know, yeah, on Scooby also on Putnam Scooby-Doo, we had uh, the unique. Really, nobody was doing this. We had uh, um, acapella. Background music. We had we had three young women come in and just create uh, a library of scatting and and uh, Scooby Doobies, and uh, we used those for all, all the seasons of it. And the music uh, editing department, Joe Sandusky, who became the head of editing at Warner Brothers when I was there. Uh, he, he cut music for all the Hanna-Barbera shows. And he said, I said, you just got to treat that stuff like it's music, Joe. But, but there are people talking uh, in the dialogue on this, in, this, in this show. They're talking. You want me to put behind them scatting? I said, yes, I do. He said, you're nuts. That's not going to work. But I think it worked out. It did. You know, this is going to sound weird, but you know the only other show I've ever seen that used on? Uh, Carmen San Diego. 
Close. Doug. Oh, Doug. Yeah. I didn't know. Does Doug do it? Yeah, basically do the kind of scatting beatboxing thing in the background. Did that, so that kind of, yeah. I always felt like somebody's paying attention over there. Yeah, yeah. All right, so... All right, so when it comes to writing, do you prefer writing full script style or just kind of like a soft script? My opinion on that is that both work, but my style, uh, when I'm writing, uh, when I'm a writer on a show or I'm a story editor of a show, uh, I write the hell out of it. I, I like to put in all the details in the script, all the paragraph or description, very detailed. Uh, I like every line of dialogue. I often will write entire sequences of the dialogue and then I'll go back and put in the uh, the actions. I think the dialogue in most of the shows that I've worked on, uh, the comedies, dialogue is really important in comedy. It just really is. Unless you're doing Buster Keaton movies, uh, the dialogue nowadays in cartoons, uh, if, if it's supposed to be funny, you're going to find a lot of that in the dialogue and with appropriate visuals helping out. Um, uh, so Scripting, I mean, on Animaniacs, Tiny Toons, Pinky the Brain, those were all completely heavily scripted. Now, does that mean a funny line comes up when we're recording or uh, someone has a good idea and we want to add a line here and there? That's great. And we do it. We did it all the time. Um, now, lately, I've been making some cartoons with uh, some friends where everything is improv. So the situation is... Uh, you know, we have a situation, we have characters for the situation, we know what those characters are going to do. But uh, in the case where I'm working with these really funny people like Paul Rugg and Sherry Stoner and Deanna Oliver and John McCann, uh, we have the situation and then they just dig in and, and we record everything that they say. And then we'll go back and edit it into what we think would be the, the funniest version of it. I, I love that process. I think uh, improv cartoons are a great idea. Um, I think I don't think a really great one has happened yet, and I think that's what we're working on. Nice. How did Animaniacs come about? Animaniacs, uh, we had been very successful with Tiny Toons. And uh, my boss at uh, Warner Brothers Animation, Gene McCurdy, was the president of the division. And... Steven Spielberg, they both came to me together and said, okay, Tiny Toons is a hit, congrats, uh, what's next? And uh, Steven said, you know, I want, I want us to keep working together, I wanna, uh, what should we do next? And, uh, and he, he sort of thought we should do a sort of maybe a spinoff of Tiny Toons like the Plucky Duck show or something down that lines. And I said, I, I, I have some ideas, uh, for some new characters uh, for a new show, and uh, I'd like to pursue that. And he said, "Well, okay, but it needs to have a marquee. The new show needs to have a marquee name." And uh, I said, "Well, we've got your name is above the marquee. It says Steven Spielberg presents, you know, yada yada, or Tiny Toon Adventures." Or you know. he says, "No, no, no, not me, not my uh, the the characters. It's someone in the show. The, there needs to be a marquee name." And uh, so that was a stumper because all the characters were new. So I don't know how I'm going to. So uh, a couple of days later, I'm walking across the, the studio lot and I see the water tower up there, which is, you know, it's a big water tower with a big WB emblem on it. So it's sort of like a marquee Warner Brothers uh, on the water tower. And I, and I had a, a cartoon epiphany where I said, well, there's your marquee. And I can have these crazy characters I've been thinking about working on, and I can have them living in that water tower so they could be living in the marquee. And wait, they're the Warner Brothers. They can, they're nuts. They could be the Warner Brothers. So that's where the idea of them in the water tower. And I mean, Stephen inspired it by saying, you know, I need a marquee name. So I went back to him. I said, okay, uh, got a water tower, the Warner Brothers water tower. There's your marquee. Inside the Warner Brothers, they live there. And then there's three zany characters with their sister Dot. And, uh, and they get loose every day and they just cause havoc. And they've been making cartoons for, you know, since the 30s. And they're locked up there because they're 
they're too dangerous to uh, let loose. And so he totally bought it. He loved it. And so that's where the initial concept for the Warner Brothers and the Animaniacs show began. So on top of that, when we went and pitched the entire series to Stephen, we went to his home. So Saturday morning, we had milk and cookies, if you can believe it. And we pitched, uh, we had a whole batch of characters and he, he uh, bit thumbs up and thumbs down on them. For instance, I went and pitched uh, the Pinky and the Brain segment with, uh, and I already had written the song and the song went like this back then, it went like this. There. <clears throat> They're pink in the brain, yes, pink in the brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. They're laboratory mice, their genes have been spliced. They're dinky, they're pinky in the brain. I had, I had written it to the, you know, the song, uh, Singing in the Rain. So, uh, so that's, that's what that is. And so he loved it. And so pink in the brain were in, uh, uh, Slappy Squirrel, uh, Slappy and Skippy were in at this first meeting, and a few things didn't make the cut, uh, but Rita and Runt were in. Um, Mindy and Buttons, he said, we have too many pairs, let's not do them. At that point, uh, a little later in the, this session, this meeting we're having at his home, his, his wife and kids came in, and the littlest toddler in the group uh, walked up to, we had these cutouts of all the characters standing around. And he went up and he pointed at Mindy and said, I like her. And uh, Stephen says, Mindy and Buttons are back in. <laughs> so, so that's how they survived, which is wild, which is wild. Uh, Mr. Skullhead, uh, who, let's see, what did he do? He did a uh, good idea, bad idea. He was that weird, yeah. Uh, that was a Sherry Stoner doodle that she'd been doing since high school. Mr. Skullhead. And uh, Chicken Boo was a character that Deanna Oliver just relentlessly pursued until I just surrendered. I said, okay, you get it. She, you can do Chicken Boo. And uh, anyway, and then uh, uh, another writer, M.D. Sweeney, who wrote a lot of the uh, good ideas, bad ideas, and um, some of the Wheel of morality, Moralities, he and I both were listening to Tom Baudet novels. Uh, he, Tom Baudet write, writes and he has a bunch of books out. So we were both listening to his books on audio and we were both enamored with uh, Baudet as a narrator. So uh, that's how Baudet got involved. So that was like one of my favorite segments outside of the main was good idea, bad idea, actually. It's like, those were hilarious. Yeah, they, they really are violent and funny. Yeah, do a good idea. Uh, Doing your own, but the bad idea doing your own dentistry is just not a good idea. Was there anything that the censors kind of felt like, hey, we can't have that? Well, well, I don't know about Animaniacs. We got away with pretty much everything we tried on Animaniacs. I'm sure there's something we got cut. I mean, we didn't do a Newt Gingrich song because Steve, Stephen didn't want to do it because uh, he said just mentioning the guy makes him sick. Uh, on, on, on Road Rovers, we uh, there was a, there was a segment on Road Rovers where uh, not Blitz but uh, the Husky. Um, anyway, uh, one of the dogs was explaining how Russian names come about, and and that that little rhyme that he recites ends with you know. The middle name, here comes the spun. The papa gives his last name to the son, then adds an obit or yibich to the end. Here's an example so you'll comprehend. The papa's name is son of, now here's the switch. The kid's middle name is son of a bitch. And uh, so we made that, and that went out, and then, then we got letters from parents. You said son of a bitch on the cartoon show. So that segment got edited, uh, got cut from further viewings and it, it even got cut from the DVD, which is sad. But that that little poem was something I wrote in high school when I was taking a, like a Russian literature course. So anyway, things that never get wasted. Animaniacs kind of helped harbor a generous of smart asses. 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, we encourage uh, people to be sort of wise asses and Weisenheimers and, and, and it's okay to laugh. And I, I, I really think uh, that was a good service. So how did Freakazoid come about? Freakazoid, let's see, we had, we had, uh, uh, let's see if I do that. Okay. Let's see, there was a uh, Pinky the Brain was going, uh, Road Rovers uh, was not going yet. That's right. So uh, Pinky the Brain and, and the series and, and Freakazoid, the series, both, both uh, premiered the same weekend, I think. And uh, so... Yeah, that's when we wound up over at the WB, which was not great for our ratings, but oh well. And uh, so Freakazoid had been developed by uh, Paul Dini and Bruce Tim. And they had, uh, I'm going to go with my little background because I don't think this is working. Yeah, Batman, right? Yeah, they, they, they were working on Batman and Steven who was always looking for uh, an opportunity to work with people whose creativity he admires. So he got together with them and said, let's, let's do a, uh, a superhero show. And so they worked on uh, Freakazoid. And, uh, and then at some point, Stephen said, it's not funny enough. I, I need it to be funny. And uh, Bruce, Bruce Tim thought it was funny enough. And Stephen said, no, it needs to be zanier. And I don't think Bruce was ready for that. So he, uh, he and Paul Dini sort of bowed out. And Gene and, and Stephen came to me and said, we, we want you to take over Freakazoid, the development of it. And the problem is it was January and the show's on in September. And that's not a lot of lead time. That's not enough lead time. So, especially for a cartoon like that, it takes like yeah. a year for it to develop, right? Yeah. So, uh, I got John McCann and Paul Rugg to join me, and we spent uh, a weekend uh, separately writing material for Freakazoid. Just they said, well, what? They said, well, what are we going to write? Says, just write anything with that would involve in any way uh, a superhero who has multiple powers and. Uh, he lives in Washington, and uh, he saves the world a lot. And but he's he's a mental case. He's he's completely zany. He's funny. Uh, he, he basically wins the day through comedy. He's that's his, that's his biggest superpower is sort of comedy. And so anyway, we both we all three wrote a lot of stuff. We sent it over to Spielberg. It was. Uh, it was just a bunch of really insane stuff. I mean, it was schizophrenic. It was just every. It was just like a comedy. It was like it took a big bowl of comedy and smashed it on the floor. And anyway, so it was like ninety pages of <laughs> material for him to read, and it was little skits with Freakazoid, and he 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 loved it. It was it was hilariously funny. It had the handman stuff. It had a lot of the segments that got into the show. But um, he said, it's got, you're going to have to have more coherence to There's got to be, you know, there's got to be like a through line because this was just really little short stuff. Um, so that's how it started. And then we had uh, basically about six months to generate the scripts and uh, make the show. So we got Mitch Shower to come in who had done uh, 13 Ghosts. I did that with him and he came in and produced and uh, Scott Gerald was storyboarding. We had uh, Ronnie Del Carmen and Dan Reba directing and Eric Radomski direct. I mean, we had brilliant, brilliant people writing and directing and storyboarding. And uh, then we got these voices that were just tremendous. Um, and we had a real problem getting a voice for Freakazoid because, you know, the the audition copy went out and we said, okay, we're looking for the, the, the star of this show and it's Freakazoid and he is, he's zany, he's a nut. He's a superhero, but he's really funny and, and nutty. And so everyone in town auditioned for Freakazoid and every audition, quite honestly, sounded the same. They, they were all like, yeah, Freakazoid! 
Sunday, I'm greasy. Wow. So every audition was like, oh my God, oh my God, uh, what have we done? What have we sent out? We sent out the wrong information because he's not written that way. He's written like he he he's mood, he has moods, he has different sections of his personality. He can be very serious, he can be normal, he can be crazy. So he has so uh, we sent it out again. We said there are different moods, but they all sort of came back the same. Ah! So uh, Paul Rugg, who had been doing the voice of Mr. Director on uh, on Animaniacs, you know, the Jerry Lewis thing. That's right, I'm Mr. Director, and, and I go into a Jerry Lewis thing. And he had done a few other voices. I, I, and he's very talented, very funny guy. So I said, Paul, just give me some hope. Walk in there into the booth and just go through all the copy we have here. Let's well, maybe we have to change the copy for people to audition. Just read through it and, and just give it your take on it. And he did, and he did a fabulous job. So that's where this whole improv thing came in because I, I said, this is very funny stuff, Paul. Why don't you uh, now, uh, in this little area where you're at the dance of doom uh, and you're talking to everybody, why don't you right there just throw in, just go off, go, just take it in some weird direction that Freakazoid might want to do. Because Freakazoid is like a comedian and he needs to be able to improv. So Rug can improv. So Rug proceeded to do Freakazoid where he was like leading everyone at the dance in sort of a, okay, everybody, let's all get up. Let's get up. And, and, and uh, he just, okay, over there, everybody, follow me. Sort of like a Simon Says thing. And it was hilarious. So we sent that to Steve and we said, how about this? for Freakazoid, and he said, yeah. So Rug got the job. And ultimately, you know, John and Paul, uh, uh, John McCann and Paul Rugg uh, produced the show in the second season, along with Rich Aarons. And uh, I got to go work on uh, Road Rovers and other things. Because oh. I always thought Freakazoid was, it felt like, Okay, so knowing that, you know, Brewster and Paul Dean would work on there, I always kind of felt like maybe this is kind of like a vacation from Batman. Like, let's do the opposite of what we used to do on a Batman, just to kind of like, just to recharge ourselves. Oh, well, uh, maybe. I think I think they didn't want to go as far into the comedy and zaniness as Stephen wanted them to go. So that's that's probably why they... Dragged me into it. Oh, okay. So Ed Asner worked on Freakazoid too, right? Ed Asner was, uh, yeah, he was the sergeant. Um, what was his name? Um, blanking. I'm blanking out too. Yeah. That's all right. I know, right? I put it this way: being stuck at a, being stuck in a house in a year, your memory goes like that. <laughs> I'm telling you, you're like Cosgrove. Cosgrove. Yes, Sergeant Cosgrove. Hey, Freakazoid, you want to go watch a bear ride a motorcycle? Do I? Yeah! Want to go get a mint? Sure. How about a snow cone? I'm there! Yeah. Cosgrove, Cosgrove always had good ideas of things to go do. Sure. Because I remember watching Freakazoid, right? Because I was I was that weird kid who watched TV Land like on Nick and Night and shit like that, right? So I was like, I know that voice. It's like oh. Mary Tyler Moore show. Ed Asner, sure. Yeah. yeah, so I was like, hey, freak us Cut it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're spunky. I hate spunky. Yeah. yeah. Was there any possible way to kind of like just do any kind of callback to like, you know, to, to like Lou from Mary Tyler Moore? Was there any kind of urge to do that? Or just felt like, nope, we're not going to go back. We're going to move forward. No, but we did that with uh, with uh, our villain, our head villain. See, I'm planking on it now. Uh, Corinthian leather. Um, anyway, we had him call back the Wrath of Khan. He he played Khan, uh, so we had him. We had him do Wrath of Khan stuff. Uh, you, uh, you torment me for this art. All right. 
Okay, some other. Okay, I was wondering something. I looked this up. Is it true you're the basis of Cooper Deville in Tiny Toons? That's a yeah. That's a caricature uh, of me, with Rob Paulson doing like a Woody Allen voice uh, on top of it. Yeah, but that's a caricature. That's one of the. That's the Bruce Tim studio caricature of me at that point. Yeah. All right. Speaking of studio caricatures, I asked this one, but others might not know, know the answer. Because I'm trying to get in for like about like good 20, 22, 23 years. Who was Ralph? Who was Ralph's security guard based off? Because the first time I heard it was like Ralph Bash. He said, "No, that's not true." But I'm, it feels a weird inkling. I don't know. I saw Ralph Bash well, lately, actually. <laughs> Ralph Bakshi, uh There was a really hideous uh, character. Uh, on Tiny Toons that was like the Buster Bunny Bunch. And there's this really hideous sort of Ralph Bakshi-esque character. Ralph, who's Ralph? And that was that was a caricature of Ralph, uh, of Ralph Bakshi. But that character is not the same as Ralph the Guard. I mean, Ralph the, Ralph the Guard is a very cleaned up version of that. But Ralph the Guard is named after my neighbor, Ralph Mayo, from my childhood. Okay. Yeah. Confession to entertain my friends, I'll just do these weird voices sometimes, right? And just like my animation geek friends, I'll just do this weird Ralph Bakshi impression. It's not that tough to do. Just do a typical Queen's accent with really spitty. That's the thing I just kind of figured out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. By the way, uh, let me go back on uh, because I did blank on it. Uh, and you can edit this together, maybe. Uh, All the but, time. Uh, I'm surprised uh, I haven't done the clap thing off the record thing yet. <laughs> Great, but Ralph uh, Ricardo Montalban played uh, the the steady heavy uh, Gutierrez in the Freakazoid show. Ricardo Montalban, who uh, played uh, Khan in The Wrath of Khan, yeah, and, uh, it was. And uh, you you vex me, Freakazoid, you know. <laughs> and we gave him lines from like. Uh, um, Silence of the Lambs, and anyway, but he he was uh, fabulous to have there, and and Rug does a really good Ricardo Montalban, so they were doing doodling Ricardo Montalbans in the booth. It's pretty funny. You know, that's what I always really dug about that era because, you know, it wasn't just cartoons for kids because they knew, all right, parents have to watch this too. Let's throw throw them a bone or two, right? I've always yeah. loved that. You know. Yeah, that we were not. We were not in an era where everything was for a niche. I mean, we were really going for a pretty broad audience. I know that the commercials were for children, but uh, basically there wasn't a network that was all cartoons all the time at that point. So uh, we were trying to get the parents interested too. Smart move, you know, he did it in like a clever way too, you know, and always dug that. Okay, so. All right, so since you work at you work at Disney Television too, right? Yes. What's the difference between working at Disney Television and Walt? And let me try it again. What's the difference between working at Disney Television and Warner Brothers Animation? Well, uh, first of all, I, I've been with Disney Television much more recently than I've been with Warner Brothers Television. Uh, Warner Brothers, I I haven't worked there steadily since about two. 2000, 2001. Um, uh, with Disney, I, I've been there, uh, you know, from maybe 2007 to 2017, 18. So I, I, I've been there for the last decade or so. And so uh, my my uh, friendships and allegiances with, with uh, Disney television are, are very strong. And uh, I like I like the people there a lot. I like the execs there a lot. They're, they're, and the artists are brilliant. Um, so uh, the difference is I work, I work there two different decades. So it's, it's going to be very different. I mean, we, we were still making cell animation cartoons when I was at Warner Brothers. Um, you know, it's all digital now. And, uh, but Disney has an incredible operation. I mean, they are, you know, they're the leaders in animation around the world for a reason. They really uh, have their stuff together. I think uh, Warner Brothers is still making very funny cartoons. I think I think some of the current cartoons uh, on uh, with Bugs and Daffy, the Looney Tunes, there's some really good-looking, great animation, funny stuff. Um, and I'd say 
I would like to see Disney uh, pursue the funny because there are a lot of funny animation people out there that uh, really could do a great job for Disney uh, doing really funny material. But, you know, Disney has an audience that they are uh, addressing. They, they, they hey, own Ruger, little Greek kids. With them. They, hey, you know, they own that era, that area. Hey, that was Tom and uh, so hey, chatting with them. You know, but they're doing a great job. So I, I have admiration for, for both operations. I think when I was making uh, Animaniacs, uh, Pinky the Brain, Freakazoid back there in the 90s, I had a boss named Gene McCurdy. I had uh, colleagues like uh, Nick Hollander and Peter Hastings and, and Rich Herons and Rugg and McCann and Stoner and Deanna Oliver and Hey, uh, Kathy Ruger. Page, just it was an honor to talk wonderful, to talented hey, people, great voice artists, talk to and uh, creatively, Jeff, it was a wonderful time Jeff, because nobody really was uh, Until next time, take questioning pretty much. And we we had kind of carte blanche. Stephen Stephen like, carried such a show. Uh, like, heavy uh, like, share, and subscribe to the show. Uh, club like, share, if, if we will like, uh, he, he like, really uh, carried a lot of weight and like, whatever share. he wanted was subscribe, good and he like, wanted share. the cartoons Until we were making time, so that, easy and please that was great sense. um subscribe like share and the budget was time, great take it was easy big uh, so creatively it was a wonderful time uh creatively when i was at hey, uh, was disney Luger, uh, on the 7d uh they they hey, treated Ruger, me great incredibly well, and they basically gave me carte blanche again to just make really funny so, cartoons. This was a pretty big I, interview I really for me. appreciate that. Until next time, take it easy. Cool. Please use common sense. All right, I can cut and this question out. I've always wondered something. Okay, also so check out his new project. I've always also thought it was kind of funny project. where like you know some studios they would do like the year in gag like, or something share, like that. Right? Was there anything like that on any shows you worked on? Was there ever like kind of like just something just to kind of goof around with the animators? You know. Like it was like a like, it was like a lost episode or like a, or a lost episode or lost short of Animaniacs were just for in in house use only, you know? Yes, I I I own the only copy. There is I have a uh, I have um, two uh, I guess they're eight or nine minutes a piece. It's like a full half hour of uh, two of the cartoons that aired, and so. Uh, we got all the actors to come in, and we we spent an afternoon drinking, and we we uh, redid all the voices, all the dialogue, so that it's uh, it's just filthy. It's just a, a disgusting, filthy mess. Yes. Uh, them Here's swearing my... swearing at each other and telling each other to go f off, and just uh, fabulous. I have a theory. Every I just feel like every studio has at least one real like. It kind of feels like if y'all think Rock's Modern Life was bad, don't forget that year in gag reel we did, <laughs> or something like that. It's like it is. It's, has something. it's a gag reel. Yeah. Oh uh, uh, it's disgusting. It's disgusting. On a, um, on a scale of one to Aristocrats, how bad? Oh, Aristocrats. I love that movie. Aristocat, Aristocrats. Um, well, it's not Gilbert Gottfried bad, but it's. Uh, <laughs> It definitely flirts with the same area because it's because because you see like in the risk it's a family act it's a family act <laughs> my god and so the the Warners and Pinky the Brain and they're they're sort of like well the Warners are really their family but they're they're the way they're uh, dealing with disgusting things with with scratch and sniff and and the Pinky and the Brain they're they're just abusing everyone oh it's great. I just had a feeling, because I kind of feel like, you know, that something had to be there, you know, there's something like, I can tell, like, um, th that staff just like fun to work with, so they have a sense of humor like that. I just had oh, a weird yeah. feeling, you know? Yeah, yeah. the brain, the brain basically is just, uh, he just tells everybody to F off, and he's not going to take any more direction from anyone. Anyway. I can, I can totally see that happening, yeah. Have you seen that one meme about the theory about Pinky and the Brain? Where where one's the genius, the other's insane, and yeah. yeah. So they never say which was which, though, because theoretically, if you keep doing the same damn thing over and over again, you might be in the little in the nuttier side of the of the spectrum. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I, I there's validity in that they're both uh, brilliant in a way, and they're both insane in a way. They're both definitely they both have insane 
uh, qualities. See, one is a genius, the other is insane. It's not one is a genius and the other is a dope, because then it would be clearly one's the uh, pinky's a dope, but uh, it's not that. It's one is a genius, the other is insane. Really, both of those sound like brain when you think about it. He's he's a genius, but he's also insane because he's not going to. He's trying to take over the world, like you said. You know, keep doing the same thing over and over. You're gonna, uh, you're gotta be nuts. Um, and you know, Pinky has moments of brilliance when he's, you know, his his sort of empathic abilities uh, come through. And uh, so, the the problem is in, in the main title when when they're saying one is a genius, the other is insane. They're going behind this X-ray machine. And you're seeing that the brain's uh, brain is packed with all sorts of really intense equations and smart things, while Pinky's brain is sort of an empty uh, hole with a peanut in it. So yes. visually, that says one is a genius and the other is uh, has a very low IQ, I think. So that's it's not the same as insane, though. Yeah. Sure. So, so the discussion can go on. It's been going on for like literally, if you think of almost like decades now, you know, you, you know. <laughs> so, is there anything else out there you want to check out? Uh, let's see. What am I going to. Well, um, oh, yeah. Check out uh, Will You Wear a Mask? I ask. Uh, go online, go to YouTube. Uh, Will You Wear a Mask? I ask. Uh, put my name in it, Tom Ruger, and you'll, you'll be able to watch. Uh, uh, a video with uh, illustrations uh, by yours truly and uh, with all the voices by Mark Hamill. And uh, I think it's a fun little view. So nice. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Tom, great chatting with you. Honor to speak with you. You know, it's a pleasure. Next... Cool. Yeah. We got to do this again sometime. Seriously. Let's do it, John. It's been a, it's been a lot of fun and yeah, you, you stay cool. Uh, and let's stay in touch. All right, cool. Thanks. Hey, that was Tom Ruger. I've been a fan of his since I was a kid. Great chatting with him. Check out his new project, Will You Wear a Mask, I Ask. Until next time, take it easy. Please use common sense. And also like, share, and subscribe to the show. Peace.